Welcome to the second podcast in the series on the Industrial Revolution. In this podcast, we're going to take a look at uh, reforms that go on as a result of industrialization. Specifically, we're going to take a look at the ideas and thinkers of the time and see how they impacted uh, industrial thought. We're also going to take a look at the origins and the concepts of socialism. And embedded in that, we're going to describe what communism is as a part of socialism. Um, we're going to talk about Karl Marx and Frederick Engels and what they do to add to communism. We're also going to examine uh, unionization and legislative reform of the time and tie that into change that goes on during the Industrial Revolution. Lastly, we're going to describe other reform movements that happen outside of uh, Europe, outside of Great Britain. <clears throat> When we talk about uh, the Industrial Revolution, we have to talk about a man by the name of Adam Smith. Now, Adam Smith is alive during the revolution itself. He lives through it, sees it firsthand, and he writes a book called The Wealth of Nations. Now, in The Wealth of Nations, he describes exactly what capitalism is, probably because he gets to see it firsthand. He describes... Um, a system of economics that is driven purely by human beings, not by the government, um, by the consumers, by supply and demand, by what people want and what people are willing to produce, rather than what governments want and what governments say should be produced, which, uh, before capitalism was around, was pretty much the norm. Now, a part of what capitalism is, is this idea of laissez-faire, and that really goes along with um, governments not interfering or intervening with businesses. Laissez-faire uh, literally means hands off and that's exactly what businessmen wanted when they uh, were owning the business. They wanted the governments to keep their hands off, not regulate um, anything that goes on there. And what eventually happened as a result of capitalism and laissez-faire uh, economics, which just about every nation adopted at the time, were uh, poor working conditions, um, urban poor rising in population, um, and for the people who were lucky enough to not be a part of that, uh, tremendous wealth. The problem was, though, that the people who were getting wealthy during this time, who had a lot of money, were not a majority of the population, very small amount. Um, the Industrial Revolution, as some historians break it up, um, really can be broken down into two different groups as the outcome and those two groups are the winners and the losers obviously the winners of the industrial revolution would be the factory owners the people who are making mass amounts of money and as we said before the uh, the winners are very few and far between now the losers on the other hand they are the workers they're the people who uh, work terribly long hours in very bad working conditions, uh, dark factories, um, poorly ventilated with very little time off, um, women and children also working there too. So to some people who are taking a look at the Industrial Revolution, they really see that majority of the people who are coming out of it are losers as opposed to what um, people like Adam Smith or what Samuel Smiles would say um, are that most people coming out of the Industrial Revolution are winners. Now, as, as a check to capitalism, this new idea called socialism begins to rise, and uh, there's a couple of important people to note 
who come up with this idea of socialism. Probably the two most famous ones are uh, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. They write this book called The Communist Manifesto, which uh, we'll get into a little bit later. But before we talk about them, there are a couple other important people that are worth noting. Um, the first one we're going to talk about is a guy by the name of Jeremy Bentham. Now, Bentham um, promoted this idea of utilitarianism. And just like it sounds, utilitarianism is the idea that if it's useful to somebody, it should be used. Right? It's quite simple. Um, everything really should be judged on how useful it is. Governments um, should try to promote the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And if it's something that's not going to help out uh, the people, then there's really no sense in using it as a government policy. And to Bentham, um, without government regulation, which socialism really calls for, he sees uh, the Industrial Revolution as not being very useful to the people. Um, a second person we're going to talk about here is um, John Stuart Mill. Um, Mill feels that workers really should share in the wealth and he is one of the first people to describe socialism much like Adam Smith was one of the first people to describe capitalism John Stuart Mill is one of the first to identify and talk about socialism and socialism um, as an uh, attack almost on capitalism something that's the exact opposite of capitalism says that the factors of production should be owned by the public and they should operate for the welfare for all in capitalism, the factors of production, land, labor, and capital, are owned by a very few, all right, or the winners in society. In socialism, uh, the factors of production would be owned by everybody, including the workers or the losers in the Industrial Revolu Revolution. And they should operate for the welfare for everybody, not just uh, the very few winners. Um, socialists believe that government should play in the economy. They feel that they should have heavy, heavy government regulation, and um, instead of depending on the imaginary market of supply and demand and uh, the invisible hand that Adam Smith talks about, socialists feel that the Industrial Revolution has caused things to get way out of control, and the uh, governments really need to step in. Now, going along with what socialists said, there's two men by the names of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels who write about a different kind of socialism, um, almost an extreme form of socialism called communism. They write a book called The Communist Manifesto, and in that, they divide up uh, society into two different groups. And not surprisingly, these two groups are very similar to the winners and the losers. They just call them the haves and the have-nots. The haves, obviously, are the rich uh, factory owners. Uh, businessmen, things of that nature. The have-nots are the workers. Now, Marx and Engels, they go even further to describe these social classes. The haves to them would be considered the bourgeoisie. We've talked about the bourgeoisie before as the middle class, but by the time of the Industrial Revolution, the bourgeoisie uh, become a little bit more than the middle class, and they become uh, quite rich. They're not upper class yet because uh, Europe still is divided by... Um, lords and nobles and things like that even though political revolutions have happened those uh, feudal name tags kind of still last um, they're still around for for people and the bourgeoisie this middle class because they begin to get rich 
a an underclass of people begins to form and this underclass of people the poor the workers the factory workers Marx and Engels named the proletariat so this imaginary battle between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat or the rich and the poor um, results in a conflict for Marx and Engels and they predicted that uh, communism would be triumphant uh, in Europe and they really start to spread their ideas to the working class of people now their communist revolution the idea that they had in their head followed a couple different steps the first step would be that factories uh, drive these small shops out of business um, small numbers uh, of people control business which had already happened in Europe at the time the uh, artisan the mom-and-pop stores were very much driven out by the huge conglomerates the cartels as Spodek says um, and only a very small number of people can control the businesses now the proletariat the people that are working um, according to Marx they're gonna revolt and they're gonna take back the factories from the owners you know uh, probably with violence according to Marx um, <clears throat> these workers would bring about uh, economic equalities for people Marx and Engels uh, discussed how these workers would create a utopian society with um, no private ownership that's one of the basic ideas of communism is that there's no private property there's no private ownership and also there really is no need for the government um, Marx is somewhat of an anarchist because he feels that after the proletariat revolt the governments are going to be obsolete and nobody's really gonna need them anymore um, as a result of this revolution workers will control the government themselves but they won't have uh, a need for elections or rulers or presidents or kings or anything of that nature um, society will also be classless there will be no more bourgeoisie or proletariat there'll be no more um, rich or poor everybody would be pretty much equal um, and again as I said communism uh, operates in the belief that there's no private property all goods are shared equally all right um, obviously this is going to be somewhat of a problem for Europe at the time because they've just undergone the major political revolutions uh, the glorious revolution of 1688 in England the French Revolution and even across the Atlantic the American Revolution in all three of these we see democracy as being very very important to uh, the, the people who fight these revolutions and communism really does not allow for a lot of democracy especially when we talk about uh, the American Revolution and one of the main ideas behind it is the uh, right to own property the right uh, to pursue happiness but in reality the right to own property um, so kind of starts out a, a very deep rooted blood feud almost between um, the United States and communist states if they would ever form now the communist revolution according to Marx never really happens the way he feels that it would have happened and a reason for that is because um, countries in Europe at the time take some steps to alleviate the problems for the workers uh, they take some steps to make working conditions better they um, give more legislative rights to people and because they did that the proletariat really never had a reason to have to revolt 
In other words, things never really got as bad as Mark said it would, um, so the people never really re revolted. Now, in talking about the uh, reforms that go on during this time, unionization and uh, legislative reforms certainly are a big part of this. Now, when we talk about unionization, we're talking about workers banding together um, to fight off or go against the oppressiveness of their bosses. And usually it was factory workers, but we see unionization taking other forms as history progresses. Um, not just factory workers, but other uh, service industry people. But in the very early stages, it's factory workers. Um, and the things that they're fighting for, besides the general oppression, they want higher wages, they want working conditions to improve, they want less uh, hours that they have to work, and a major victory for them is when they finally get the eight-hour workday. Before this, they were working um, 12 to 14-hour days, um, never on Sunday, but usually about six days a week uh, where they would have to go in. And if you can imagine working a 12-hour day, you're probably pretty tired when you go home. If you could sleep for, um, you know, maybe about 10 hours, you really only have two hours of time for yourself. And certainly the people weren't sleeping for 10 hours, they were probably getting a lot less sleep than that. But the eight hour workday was a great, great victory for them because um, they, and as they put it back then, they got eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, and eight hours for themselves to do what they wished. Um, and that eight hours that they had to do what they wished resulted in a lot of extra leisure time for the people. Um, but that comes a little bit later. Other reforms that happen that are worth noting, the Chartist movement in England gives um, more voting rights to men. Uh, the Chartists were a group of people in England who called for universal male suffrage, which meant that all men, not only uh, property-owning uh, males could vote, and it really opened up uh, people in the rural areas to be able to vote because before that, especially with the Industrial Revolution, you had a lot of urbanization occurring where the countryside of Great Britain still had some people, but they were typically left out of politics, so they didn't really have a say. The Chartist movement gives universal male suffrage to every single male, no matter um, what their economic status was or their social status. Uh, so that was a great leap forward for um, a reform of the Industrial Revolution. Other reform laws are passed in uh, Britain as well as the United States to stop child labor from occurring. Um, it set work hours, as we said before. Um, women were still working in factories, but uh, towards the end of the 1800s, women were typically moving back to the homes. There wasn't that need for them to work in the factories um, anymore. <clears throat> Other movements um, that are worth noting here, the abolition of slavery occurs because of uh, lessening need for um, that raw material. And people also begin to see that slavery inherently is bad. We see that this takes place in uh, America with the Civil War in the 1860s. Uh, slavery was abolished in the British Empire in 1837, so people are moving away from the slave economy and moving more towards capitalism. Now, slavery is very bad for capitalism because capitalism um, operates underneath the guise that 
everyone is going to contribute money back into the system. It's a cyclical kind of system where everybody contributes money back in. And for slaves who aren't earning money, they don't ever get a chance to contribute anything back in. So there's a whole large piece of the population that are not allowed um, to contribute the money back in. So slavery is abolished for economic reasons as well as uh, for moral reasons. Um, a second reform that happens because of this is women's rights. The women's rights movement is born out of um, industrialization because they do have a chance to get out to work in the factories to see what life was like outside of the home. And that taste that they get um, really pushes them towards more rights and certainly equal rights to men. If they feel that they can do the same type of work, the same amount of work that a man can do, then they should also have a say in the government. And this takes place uh, in the 1900s, 1920 in the United States, um, earlier than that in the British Isles, but we see women certainly getting more rights. And the last reform movement that we're going to talk about that springs out of the Industrial Revolution is education. Um, children before the Industrial Revolution would typically work on farms for their parents because it was a rural society. During the Industrial Revolution, because parents needed as much of an income as they possibly could, they would send their children to work in the factories and not really think anything of it. Now, these working conditions were terrible. They were very dangerous for kids. So when uh, child labor laws are placed on countries, the children now have nothing really to do. They can't be at home because both parents are working. They certainly can't go and work in the mines or in the factories. So they have to have something else to do. Rather than have an entire population of children on the streets, a lot of countries adopted free public education. Um, and not only free public education, but also mandatory public education for children between the ages of uh, 10 and 18. Something a little different than we see today. We see kids going to kindergarten at age 5, but um, having to go to school in first grade. This was something that was brand new to the people of the time. Compulsory education was something that people had never really done before. Um, and the education that the kids got, they had to go to school for the same amount of time that their parents were working. So it was almost like a babysitting service for uh, the parents who were working. But education changes, the laws change for education, and kids get a better uh, shot at life because of that. Um, and that concludes the age of reform. Next time we'll talk about uh, some of the implications of imperialism and why that was born out of the Industrial Revolution.